We've been spending some time in Luke 15. This is our third time. And we'll start reading at verse 11 and read to verse 32. And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Before we look into the word, I believe I'll ask Jim Kelly to lead us in prayer. Testify your goodness 
your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us this morning to have our hearts and our minds focused on your word. I pray you speak to us. Enable Charles to deliver this message in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask for your help here this morning. And thank mm. you for the privilege that it is to sit under the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. We ask in mm. Christ's name. Amen. We began last time, which has been two weeks ago now, to consider this very wonderful parable of the lost son. Luke 15 is a chapter about lost things, and particularly about lost things that are wonderfully found, gloriously found. Uh, there's a lost sheep that the Lord talks about first, which is found by his shepherd. And then there's a lost coin, which uh, is found by a woman who, with great concern, diligently searches for that lost coin. And then finally, there's a lost son who is found by a loving father who is waiting hopefully for his return. There are three stages, or you might say phases, of this uh, parable of the lost son. First of all, the son away from home. That's the first part of it. And then the son returning home, in the process of returning. And then the reception that the son receives at home. So uh, very clearly broken down into those stages. <clears throat> uh, first of all, the state of rebellion. And then secondly, the state of repentance. And then the state of full forgiveness and acceptance by the Father. We looked at the first two last time. I'd like to go over these just a little bit. First of all, uh, a picture of man in the state of sin and rebellion. And that's always characterized. I just want to ask you if you can remember any of these. It's been a couple weeks. But uh, what's the first characteristic of man in a state of rebellion against God? Does anyone remember? It's right here. What's the first thing he does once he gets his inheritance? He, he departs. He goes off into a far country. So the first thing that always happens uh, to man in a state of rebellion is departure. Desire to get away from God. Desire to get away from his authority and from his restraints and from him telling me what to do and running my life. I desire to be my own God and to do things my own way. And uh, sometimes that requires, in, uh, in, uh, just in our present life, it requires for children, a lot of times, if they have Christian parents, it requires them rebelling against their parents. In order, But see, it's just part of rebelling against God and wanting to get away from God. And every man is guilty of that, regardless of whether he uh, might appear to be obedient outwardly to his parents still nevertheless in our hearts we want to run things our way and so the first uh, evidence of a state of sin and rebellion is departure uh, this parable that Jesus tells later on in Luke 19 
we will not have this man to rule over us. That's the attitude of, of the person in sin. And uh, in Psalm 2, you remember the, the heathen, the nations rise up against the Lord and against his Messiah. And they say, uh, let us tear their fetters from us. It's like God's got fetters on you and he's keeping you bound up to where you can't do anything. Now that's the way the non-Christian views God's holy commandments. You know, it's been compared to the yellow line out here on the highway. That yellow line, when you have a solid, solid yellow line, that's to keep you from passing and running headlong into a semi. It's there for your good. That restraint is there for you. But the person in rebellion against God views that yellow line as a fetter. That's something to tear off and throw away. It's something God's trying to cramp my style and keep me from being happy, you see. It's just exactly the wrong idea. And so the first thing then, a state of departure, and then secondly, what happens when he departs from God? What's he begin to do? Excuse me? All right, he squanders everything. It's a state of waste. A state of sin is a state of waste. And uh, people have wasted everything from their health, their bodies, their brains, uh, their soul, their whole life, their emotional life, everything just wasted, thrown away. And uh, here all this vast estate that his father had spent his life earning to give to him, he just throws it away. And that's the state of sin. It's a state of waste. Then it's a state of want, famine within. And uh, people may not want to admit it, but deep in their hearts, there's that emptiness, there's that sense that there's what in the world am I alive for? There's a, a craving, a, an unfulfilled, unsatisfied longing for something, some reason to live, something more. The way of the transgressor is hard, it says in Proverbs 13, 15. It's not an easy road. People may put a smile on on the outside, but if they ever let themselves get quiet, and that's one reason that, you know, there's constant noise. People have to have constant noise all the time, because if you get quiet, you might have to think about that emptiness. And then <clears throat> it's a state of want, then it's a state of slavery and degradation. He ends up in feeding swine. Here is a Jew, the most unclean thing in the world, a pig, and uh, ceremonially and physically. And here he is right there in the pig pen in the muck. That's what sin will do to you. It will bring you to depths of, sin, of degradation that you have no idea, that you didn't even think that you were capable of. And that is what happens. And then it's a state of desertion. Here he is all alone. Where are all these so-called friends that uh, he spent his money on? They all forsake him. It says no one gave him anything. And then we saw it's a state of insanity. He, he, it, it's insane. And when he came to his senses, when, he, when, when the light came on and he saw reality, then he was ready to go back to his father. So a state of uh, rebellion against God and 
Now, not knowing God, the fact that a person can even go on for a day without knowing and loving and serving God, it's a temporary insanity is what it is, literally. And then we saw it was a state of lostness, and finally, that it's a state of death. Now, then we looked at man in a condition of repentance, true repentance, and it's characterized right off by sanity. He came to himself. He came to his senses. That's the first thing you can say about repentance. When a person repents, they become sane again. They become sane. And you can talk to them about things that matter, and they see that, and they understand how it fits together, and they see what folly has been. I mean, here's a guy, he says, back home, even the servants have plenty of bread. What am I doing out here eating these pig pods? That's just, the light comes on, and they can see the folly of what they're doing. I mean, sometimes that happens where a person, by the grace of God, they just wake up and realize, here I've lived 20 or 30 years of my life, and I don't have God in my life. I don't know God. And all I'm doing, you know, is uh, uh, like the physicist is chasing some little particle around, you know, giving his life for that. A.W. Tozer tells about a guy that spent his whole life trying to breed the perfect spotted mouse. And, you know, you can get all different kinds of mice if you work on it. You can really work hard and breed white ones and black ones and try to get them spotted even. And when you die, you have nothing at all, nothing, and you pass into eternity. Now, what happens in repentance is... For the first time the light comes on, you realize I've lived my whole life, I don't know God. And it's insane. I don't know why I'm even in this world. And God, by His mercy, opens our eyes. So it's a state of sanity. It's a state of resolve. I will get up. I will go to my Father. And then it's a state of confession. I've sinned. Not just I made a mistake, I made some wrong choices, but I sinned. And I sinned against heaven. You realize that God is the one that you've sinned against, not just some other people. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. It's a state of self-condemnation. You don't have to have somebody else condemn you. You take God's side against yourself. And you say, not somebody else, nobody has to convince you. You know, whenever I see somebody that uh, is truly repentant, as a pastor, anytime I've ever have, had to counsel anybody that was truly repentant, you've got to try to convince them why God would ever want them. It's not the other way around. You don't have to try to convince them of their sin. They see that, and they're the ones that... Uh, uh, realize and take God's side against themselves. Well, it's a state of self-condemnation. It's a state of humility. He comes back and he says, now he doesn't say give me. He says make me. Make me. I just want a place in the house. Just make me as one of your hard servants. And then true repentance involves action. He didn't just talk about it. He didn't say I want to do this. Uh, he didn't say, I will do this. He actually did it. He that confesses and forsakes his sin shall obtain mercy. Not just talking about it.
Well, a little bit of a refresher course there on the first part of this. The son away from home in rebellion, the son returning home in repentance. Now what I'd like for us to look at today is the son's reception when he returns to the father's house. And this takes up verse 20 to 24. Uh, These are some of the most amazing words that have ever been heard by mortal man. Listen to what Jesus says. He got up, verse 20, he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I want to remind you again today that these parables are not just little stories. These parables are descriptions of invisible spiritual reality. In other words, the Lord Jesus is giving us here a description of what God is like. He's telling us what God is like. The God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who dwells, it says he dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. That God, Jesus tells us what he's like when some sinner dares to come to him and ask his forgiveness and beg for mercy. What is that God like? How would he respond? Well, he tells us here how God would respond. We have the answer in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Five verbs here, every one of them significant. What are they? What did his father do? Pardon? He saw him. He ran. He fell on his neck or embraced him. Oh, I'm sorry, felt compassion. I couldn't hear that one. He felt compassion for him. He embraced him and what? He kissed him. Okay, he saw him, he felt compassion for him, he ran, he embraced, and he kissed. Now, every one of these the Lord Jesus has chosen to tell us something about God, how God responds to a returning sinner. And the first one is he saw him. Now, why is that significant? Well, because the father had never given up hope on this wayward son. He had never written him off. He had never become hard and careless and callous and cynical. He was still going to some high spot and gazing down the road that that son had gone down. Evidently, because he saw him while he was yet a long way off. And he he recognized who it was while he was a long ways off. So the very fact that the father sees him, nobody else saw him first, the father saw him first before anybody else saw him. That says he was the one that was looking and watching for the son's return. Now, this is amazing. This is the heart of God toward the repentant sinner. Secondly, 
It says he felt compassion for him. What could he have felt? He could have felt disgust and contempt. I mean, look at how, look at this son and look at how he's dragged my name in the gutter. He could have felt disgust when he saw him. But instead, the heart of God went out to him. His heart, some translate it this way, his heart went out to him. His affections were drawn forth, and he felt compassion upon him. Uh, We looked at this word compassion whenever we considered the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says that Samaritan, Jesus says, and he chose this, that Samaritan saw that guy in the ditch, and it says he felt compassion for him, and that's what caused him to go over there. And when you read through the Gospels concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, moved with compassion, he did such and such. Moved with compassion. God feels such compassion for the returning sinner that he is moved to do something. And that's what the next thing is. He ran. It says that this father ran. Now, the father in this parable could not have been uh, what you'd call a young man. He had two sons, and the younger son was a grown man. And so here this father was, And in that part of the world, it was not considered very dignified for such a man to run. I mean, here's the head of the household, this dignified gentleman. And the father in this home gathers up his robes and runs to meet the son. He can't wait to get there. He runs to meet him. Now, this, this is another glorious thing. God is telling us his attitude towards those who will come to him. And you know, Satan will tell you that if you try to come to God, he'll smash you and destroy you. But that's just the opposite of what Jesus says here. He says, if that prodigal will turn himself toward home, God will run to meet him. He'll run to get there. And what did he do? Well, he fell on his neck, or he embraced him. He threw his arms around his son's neck. What did this son look like? He was probably disgusting, probably dirty and in rags, and uh, foot sore and dragging along, runs out there and throws his arms around him, falls on his neck and embraces him. These are amazing things. We're, th- we're talking here about God's reception of the sinner. What else did he do? Well, he kissed him. And in the original, it's the idea he covered him with kisses. He didn't just take him and embrace him and kiss him one time. He just smothered this dirty kid with kisses. <clears throat> he received him and threw his arms around him, ran to meet him. And uh, with his heart overflowing, he covers him with kisses. The Bible says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And Psalm 86, verse 5, Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon thee. 
abundant in loving kindness. The King James says plenteous in mercy. So what we see here illustrated is the fact that God is not just, you know, you don't just squeak into the kingdom. And God, with you know, kind of a halfway in anger, says, well, I guess you can come in. That isn't it at all. He is abundant, overflowing, plenteous in mercy, generous in mercy, pouring out his affection upon the one returning home. Now, that sets the stage here. <clears throat> this is his reception. And the son immediately, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice here again, and actually I could have had this last time, the heart of one who is truly repentant. The father has already showered love upon him and let him know his acceptance. And the fact that he knows his acceptance just makes him want that much more to confess his sin. See, that, that's a heart that's truly repentant. Whenever the fact of acceptance just makes you want that much more to confess your sin to God. You know, the true Christian, in one sense, he feels worse. And I, this, you misunderstand this, but in one sense, a true Christian feels worse about his sin after he's been forgiven. Because he has wounded the love of the Father, and he loves now, he loves the one, his contrition is based on love for the Father. Let me just read a passage from Ezekiel on this. This is Ezekiel 20, <clears throat> verses 43 and 44. God says, There in the land you will remember your ways, and all your deeds which, with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done, then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And then back in chapter 16, something similar, he says... <clears throat> You shall know that I am the Lord in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have what? Punished you for all you've done? No, he says, when I have forgiven you for all that you've done, the Lord declares. So, in the truly repentant heart, now in the unrepentant heart, as soon as you get a license, you know, to get away with it, you're right back where you were. But for the repentant heart, the knowledge of forgiveness and of the love of the Father just causes a deeper humiliation for the sin. And so here this son, he truly in his heart, he truly in his heart is sorry for what he's done. And the father runs out and embraces him and kisses him and receives him. That makes him all the much more want to say, would you forgive me? I've sinned against heaven and in your side. And so he begins to come out with it. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he does, he was going to say, make me as one of your hired servants. He can't even get the words out of his mouth because the father stops him and says, now enough of that talk about yourself. 
Go get to kill the fatted calf. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. You see, he doesn't even let him finish uh, the things that he wanted to say. But those things were there in his heart, welling up, and he starts to confess to his father. But the father pours out a welcome upon him. And he says, enough of that. And he says says to the slaves, verse 22, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Now, before we look at what he says here, I just want to say a little bit about what he does not say. There is not one word of rebuke. Isn't this something? There's not one word of rebuke. J.C. Ryle says this, there's neither rebuke nor reproof for the past, nor galling admonition for the present, nor irritating advice for the future. Uh, You see, when there's true repentance, there's no need for that. That son had already said those things to himself. That's what true repentance is. And so the Father is free to just totally, fully forgive him and forget. When God forgives, he fully forgives and forgives. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. And so God forgave him and said not one word of rebuke, all joy, all reception. And so he says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and a ring, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now let me just uh, give you a quote here from Matthew Henry. He says, here is rich and royal provision made for him, far beyond what he did or could expect. He would have thought it sufficient and been very thankful if his father had but taken notice of him and bid him go to the kitchen and get his dinner with his servants. But God does for those who return to their duty and cast themselves upon his mercy abundantly above what they're able to ask or think. The prodigal came home between hope and fear. Fear of being rejected and hope of being received. Now, isn't that the case? Fear of being rejected and hope of being received. But his father was not only better to him than his fears, but better to him than his hopes. That's what happened. He, he, you know, he's afraid that he might be rejected. He knows he deserves to be rejected. And he's got this hope. Maybe my father will just let me come back and be one of the hired servants. That's his hope. And when he comes to the Father, the Father is better to him a thousand times greater than all his hopes. Not just greater than his fears. That's the situation. Have you been there, beloved? That's what it is to become a Christian. You come to God hoping and fearing and hoping about this much, and he gives you a thousand times more than all that you could have hoped. Now notice what it is. First of all, a robe. He doesn't say bring a coat. That would have been great grace if he had just brought him a coat. But he says a robe. And not just a robe, but notice this. He says quickly bring out the best robe. Now this is incredible. I say God is talking to us about what he's like. He's wanting us to know what he's like. 
Can you imagine being in the pig pen and staying in the pig pen when there's a father like this back home? God is telling us, I'm the father like this back home. And this is the way I'll receive you if you come. I'll receive you, I'll run to you, I'll embrace you, I'll kiss you, and I'll give you the very best robe. He doesn't just say give him a good coat. He says the best robe. Give him the best robe. So in other words, in their household, out of all their riches, they had robes, and they had one robe that was the finest thing. I mean, it was saved back. He goes and gets that robe to put on this prodigal son. It's amazing. Now I say, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever come to God in rags? Just hoping to get anything to cover your nakedness, and lo and behold, he puts on you the very best robe that ever could be. And that robe is the righteousness of Christ. And you find yourself, instead of being clothed with rags, which is all of our righteousnesses, are like filthy rags. Instead of being clothed with rags, you look down and you're clothed with absolute perfect righteousness, the the robe of Christ, of his righteousness. It's the best robe. There's none like it. There's nothing to compare in any way with that robe. And he brings out the very best thing in existence and puts it on you. When you come to him. Well, he puts a robe on him and then he puts, he says, a ring for his hand. Why the ring? The ring spoke of authority. You remember Pharaoh took off his signet ring, gave that ring to Joseph. And uh, here this uh, son comes back here. All of a sudden he's got this robe, the best robe, and he's got a ring put on his finger. That speaks of authority. It speaks of security and acceptance. All of a sudden, he's got a ring on. And not only a ring, but he has sandals for his feet. In other words, he's not a slave. He's not a servant. He came back saying, just let me, you know, he wanted to say, just let me be a slave. But suddenly, he has sandals on his feet, and he is a son again. And he's been received, he has respect, he has dignity. Now this, this is incredible. And the, the, the returning sinner realizes that he doesn't deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve any respect, he doesn't de- deserve sonship, he doesn't deserve this robe. But here he is with this robe on. And then what else? Well, verse 23, he says, Bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and be merry. Now notice, bring the fattened calf. They didn't have half a dozen of them. And uh, down here a little bit later in verse 27, he, uh, his, the servant says to the elder brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. And uh, where is it? Down in verse 30. This son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots. You killed the fattened calf. There's just one. They had a calf that they had been saving and feeding, stall feeding and taking special care of and getting it fattened up for some super special occasion. And that calf, you see, that if you went out, the 
master says to one of the servants, go out and kill us a calf for uh, this feast that we're going to have. They didn't touch that one. That was the fattened calf. That was for some super special thing. And he had to give specific instructions before they would do that. And they went out and got that calf and killed it. Let us eat. Let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. This son came home hungry. He not only was fed, he was given a feast. He came home in rags. He not only was clothed, he was given a robe. He came home wanting to be just a slave. If he could just have the mercy of being a slave in that household, he not only became a slave, he was a son in that household with sandals on his feet and a ring on his hand. Someone said this feast speaks of the joy of a forgiving God over a forgiven man and the joy of a forgiven man in a forgiving God. Now that's what, really, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. We're having a, that's a, it's a love feast where God is rejoicing in forgiven men and forgiven men are rejoicing in a forgiven God. And we've seen all down through here the emphasis on joy. Every single one of these parables. Verse 6, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And verse 9, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Lost. And here in this verse, let us eat and be merry. Let us eat and be merry. So this great emphasis on joy. And there began to be music and dancing. And we saw how that the one rejoicing, the primary one rejoicing is the Father. And God calls us to enter into his joy and rejoice along with him. And that's what happens every time a sinner is converted. You talk about the joy amongst the saints. Maybe somebody you've prayed for for years. And all this joy that this person has, has been converted and come to the Lord. What's actually happening is we're just entering in to the joy that God is rejoicing over that sinner being converted. He says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, I'll rejoice over you. Well, um, what does he say? This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. He was dead. Um, Herbert Lockyer says this, because of the son's self-chosen alienation and shame, his father thought of him as dead. Isn't that something? Self-chosen alienation and shame. His father thought of him as dead. But when he came back, he came back a different person. See, there was actually, for the first time, he really was his son now. It's a wonderful thing when your son becomes your son. And when your daughter becomes your daughter. Isn't that something? For the first time, he had his son. 
And so he says, my son was dead, but he's come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, I say these are amazing words, and they describe the heart of God toward anyone who will come to him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. With music and dancing. If you put yourself in the position of this son... Realizing what you've done, you've taken all this that the Father gave, you've taken it and just blown it, thrown it away and wasted it, and ended up feeding pigs in the mud. I mean, it takes some humbling to even think of going back home. And he comes back ready to take the position of a servant, saying, Make me as one of your servants. And he's just hoping to have food to eat and something to wear and be a servant he would have he would have been ready to do that and all of a sudden he finds himself clothed with the best robe with a ring on his hand sandals on his feet and this big feast and merrymaking about him that's what it is when you become a christian and that's the way you feel you feel just the same way this son felt you can't believe That such grace is showered upon you. And that this is the way God really is. This is the way He is. This is the way He treats people like that. What wonderful words these are. Lord willing, next time we'll go on and look at uh, the elder son. And uh, he was actually in a far country too. He was living right there in the home, but he was in a far country in his heart and it's something that that parable ends without you don't know whether he ever came into the house or not Jesus doesn't tell well amen let's pray Lord we We marvel at your grace to those who have, who are clothed with rags and covered with mud, that you would run to meet them. And we just, we pray that you'd help us to serve you with the gladness and the gratitude that we ought to. 
for the mercy that you've showered upon us, making us rich beyond our wildest imagination. Not only just barely forgiving us, but uh, flooding us with mercies and grace and uh, giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness, making us joint heirs with Christ and uh, giving us the very kingdom of heaven and eternal life. We, we thank you, Lord, for all your mercies to us. We pray you'd forgive us our sins. Help us to serve you more with the way we should that you might be glorified through us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.